Everyone has a story. And that's certainly true of the 118 veterans on Honor Flight Chicago's mission number 111. No matter where they served, overseas or stateside, in combat or behind a desk, they witnessed history. In some cases, they made it. In this episode, we sample the stories of eight men who served in different places at different times. The voices of Mission 111. Ed Strine Moy and his brother David Strine had ringside seats to history. Both of them served on the aircraft carrier Hornet, which was the primary recovery ship for the moon missions of Apollo 11 and 12. Ed was a corpsman on the Hornet, July 24, 1969. The Apollo 11 crew, Commander Neil Armstrong, the first man to set foot on the moon, and fellow astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins are about to splash down in the Pacific, and Ed gets to watch. So you saw Apollo 11 landing. Can you describe what that looked like? Well, we were in the South Pacific, about 900 miles south of uh, Australia, and uh, we watched we watched at the time, we all went up to the flight deck and just the whole crew and watched these three huge parachutes, red, white, and parachutes come down carrying the Apollo 11 astronauts. Neil Armstrong, who set foot on the moon. That's yeah. correct, yes. And so what was that like when you look out and you see this historic event, the parachutes are open, they're coming down, and you know who's on board and it's been a success. Well, it just brought amazement to myself and all the crew members and we were so happy to see them come down, you know, alive and having uh, experienced all that on the moon and and we were also happy to see President Nixon come aboard our ship to greet the astronauts when they came aboard. to know that I think I'm the luckiest man in the world. And I say this not only because I have the honor to be President of the United States, but particularly because I have the privilege of uh, speaking for so many and welcoming you back to Earth. Did you see that when they, uh, when the, the astronauts met Nixon? Did you watch that? Well, the security kind of prevented us from getting real close, but you could see it from afar, and, and uh, that was still interesting. Did you, at the time, really feel like you were witnessing history? Well, yes. Uh, NASA came aboard uh, a couple of weeks before the uh, recovery, and, and uh, they were giving us information, what to expect. And so that's how we uh, basically got interested in. So there had to have been a lot of excitement before the landing. You knew it was coming, you knew it would be not too far. Did you see Splashdown? We did see the Splashdown. One of the things we saw is that we had closed circuit TV. We saw everything that was happening with the astronauts on the moon. You're listening to the uh, news reports of their flight back and, and then the whole Ship to compliment uh, went up on the on the deck, and we witnessed seeing the three huge red and white uh, parachutes that was carrying their uh, spacecraft down 
down and as it landed into the ocean. That was that must have been so cool to be there and witness that. It's 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 unbelievable. It's uh, to uh, witness a situation like that. It was one of the best experiences in my life. Exactly four months later, Apollo 12 came home from the moon with astronauts Pete Conrad, Alan Bean, and Richard Gordon. You won't be docked any points for not knowing those names. Just be assured their moon mission succeeded and their landing was magnificent. You can ask David Strine, who was part of the air traffic control team on the Hornet. So when 12 splashed down, did you witness that? I did. I was... Uh... We would be, our duties were 12 on, 12 off, so it was happening during my off time. So I went up on a flight deck, actually got down in one of the gun turrets. Aircraft carriers don't have a lot of gun turrets, but they had one. And I parked my uh, rear end there, got sunburned real well, but I did see the same thing. The three white canopies, white, red and white canopies, at quite a, quite a distance away, because they didn't want the space capsule hitting the carrier, so we stayed back. A clear, beautiful view of the command module coming down in a big patch of clear sky directly ahead of the bow of the Hornet. We couldn't ask for a better view. There you see splashdown. Apollo 12 has ended its flight to the moon and has returned to the mid-Pacific. So we look at it now, 50-some years later, and we realized that a lot of the technology by today's standards was pretty primitive. And so they're flying <laughs> like spam in a can, right? This iPhone has more computing power than all of that stuff back then. Yeah, it's amazing. But you felt the same emotion that Ed felt watching these, this capsule land, right? I, I, did, I, I, I didn't know it then, uh, but I really appreciate it now. We were, we were sailors, we were doing our job, and it was exciting, it was different, it was great duty, believe me. Just being an air controller in the Navy was great duty. I mean, great duty. We are good pinochle players. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, as an air traffic controller, where do you sit, and what are you telling the pilots when they're landing on a carrier? Well, th there's, there's a group of very experienced air controllers, and they're the ones talking directly to the pilot. We also, it was air operations it was called, so we would keep the weather stats, the wind direction, the humidity, sea temperatures and all of that, and feeding that to a commander who sat above and he was watching the whole room. Did, did you find there were times when as a controller you were nervous? Were there situations that somebody came in and they had trouble making an appropriate landing? Now we had we had one uh, on my duty tour that uh, the pilot took off and he got a, a fire engine light that the engine was on fire and uh, he was loaded with fuel so they take him around dump the fuel land the plane off to the side in the water and recover the the pilot and then uh, destroy the aircraft the Navy SEALs would go in and pull. Uh, Sink the plane. It. Yeah. So he got out okay. Oh yeah, yeah. He ejected actually. Well, you guys had some experience then. I mean, that's really interesting. You yeah, got to see I, some interesting stuff, absolutely. didn't you? Yeah, I guess. Yes. I guess the real story was we were 
we were all at that uh, time that with, there was a draft going on, and he got drafted Army. My brother John drafted Army. My our dad was a a commander in the Navy, World War II vet, but stayed in as a reservist, and said none of my boys are going to Vietnam on the ground. Thanks, Dad. You're going to join the Navy, and he swore us all in, and we have a picture of at at different times swearing swearing his sons in the Navy. Before our honor flight departs Midway, I have a chance to talk with Army vet Richard Jensen, one of an estimated three million members of the American military who were exposed to the deadly chemical defoliant Agent Orange in Vietnam. But Rich wasn't just exposed, he got it all over himself, regularly, because his job in Nam was to load it onto choppers and spray it through a hose to kill the vegetation around base. We sprayed it around the perimeter of the fourth division, some other places, loaded them on choppers. We did a lot of it. Did you have any protection? Nothing. Any masks, any garb? They told us nothing. When you were done spraying, did they hose you down at all? Nope. You may have wore them clothes for two or three days. Nobody said anything about how dangerous it was. Well, you know now how dangerous it was. Oh, yeah. Do you have any ill effects from it? Oh, I've had, uh, uh, they've removed my prostate, and I still have an ongoing cancer. So you had prostate cancer. Did they link that to Agent Orange? Did the VA link it? Yeah. So you're getting disability because of that. Yeah, they cut it, but I've still got cancer. i got to go back in about every four months and get a shot so my PSA comes down. Does this whole thing, so many years later now, make you angry that no one disclosed to you the dangers of Agent Orange? Oh yeah, you start thinking about it. I mean, why didn't somebody tell us about it? That's that's the only thing, you know. I mean, I even had, when I first got into the VA and went downtown, and I talked to some guy, I don't know who he was, you know, but he's asking me questions and stuff. He asked me the same thing. When did they tell you that you had this? Never did. They asked, what did they give you to wear? Whatever I put on in the morning. All right, so do you receive benefits from the VA because of your Agent Orange-linked cancer? Yeah. Are you 100%? I was up till the first of this month. Why, why, were, was, it, why was it cut? I don't know. We're fighting it. Because I still have cancer, and they don't know where it's at. It just keeps coming back a little bit, a little bit. I go in, they give me that shot, then it goes down. I go back in in four or five months, same thing. So I imagine you're pretty frustrated, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Who do you turn to to get answers? Do you have someone who's kind of navigating you through this yes, whole thing? Uh, he works for the VA or Legion or something in Crown Point. And that's what he does, is fight for us guys that are, you know. So he's your advocate. Right. And you trust him. I got to. <laughs> Just last year, the government again expanded the list of diseases for which Agent Orange is considered the presumptive cause. Various cancers among them, prostate, bladder, respiratory, 
thyroid illnesses, Parkinson's, even high blood pressure. The disability costs are astronomical. There was a different cost for Joe Lombardi, a Purple Heart combat vet in Vietnam who lost a close friend. Joe is a Marine, and during a stop at the Marine Memorial, he shared his story. When you were there, you were on a lot of search and destroy missions, I read. Basically, that's the only thing we did was search and destroy for, from the time I got till the time I left. What was that like when you got an order to go out to a certain village or a certain area? What did they tell you to do? would uh, drop us off on an LZ, get your sea rats and your ammunition, water, and then you would go out into the bush, search for the enemy. We did come across some villages. Some of them had ammunition or rice or that, and we would destroy it. Basically, that's uh, that was the whole thing was almost... I, I probably seen the jungle 95% of the time and slept in the jungle. And then when we went back to the rear area, it was only the, the LZ, like LZ Vandegrift, LZ Stud. We would go there, get resupplied, go right back out again. Were you out in the field most of the time, or did you? Almost. I Basically, I didn't see any rear area at all. I'm as far as like, you know, Da Nang or nothing. It's all the jungle. You saw a lot of combat then, didn't you? It was sporadic. A lot of it was booby-trapped, which was scary, and a lot of it was being ambushed. When we got ambushed on Route uh, 922, we had about lost a half of the platoon. You were in that ambush? Yeah. And that's Tell where me. I was recommended for a Bronze Star at that time. What happened that day? We were going down the road. We started getting sh- shots fired from the top of the ridge. The platoon sergeant said, put them on full automatic and everybody up the, up the ridge. We got up to the top of the ridge, and there was quite a few dead Marines laying there. And what had happened was the NVA came across the top of the ridge. Lima came from this side. They, they got all of those guys went down the ridge the other way into the um, bunkers and caves and was at the ridge line or at the tree line. The lieutenant said, anybody got frags? I says, I got some, lieutenant. Can you get them in that bunker? I said, I'll try my best. So I pulled a pin, put it in my right hand, put the 16 in my left hand, ran down there, firing automatic, threw it into the bunker, rolled over and fin- finished the magazine in the bunker and, and uh, I got pictures of, they, they, they pulled quite a few bodies out. When you're running toward that bunker, are you taking fire? I didn't take any fire because I was firing pretty pretty r- rapidly in, in the m- mouth of the, of the tunnel or cave that was there. All right, then there was a subsequent incident for you. There were a couple of incidents of, of, of extreme combat. Did you have one l- later on? We got ambushed crossing the Benhoi River. That was a rough one. We lost a lot of guys on that one. And in the interim, going back to LZ Stud, we got we got uh, incoming, and a lot of my buddies had got their legs blown off. Luckily, I I only got one and one through the through the wrist, but they they hit us pretty good. They had a they had us they knew just where they where they hit them where the mortar rounds were going to go. Can, in your mind's eye, oh, can you see this? Of those particular instances, it'll never go. I'll never get out of my mind. You lost a lot of friends then. You know, you didn't always know everybody, but I did. I did lose one. We went to, in a buddy system with three of us, and one of my buddies that we grew up together from great from high school. And when we went in, uh, he got put back because he had appendicitis. <laughs> to this day, I remember so strongly. We came back from 20-day leave, said goodbye to the family, walking down the tarmac into the plane, 
And my buddy Dan said, he said, Joe, I'm not coming back. I said, Dan, are you kidding us? I'm the one that ain't going to come back. I'm the nut. He said, no, I'm not coming back. And we got separated, and I was in the I car. He was in the two second car. And in September, he got shot in the head with a sniper. He's dead. Oh, he, man. He's, that, that's the picture I'm going to put on the wall. Have you been here at the wall? Have you been to the wall? Not before? this one. There's one in Chicago. The traveling wall. Well, that's a permanent one in Chicago on the Riverwalk. Oh yeah. And this one here, I haven't been to, but this is the one, the, you know, the number one. So you're going to find his name on the wall. Yeah, I've got, you? I've got the, in my bag. I've got, uh, I've, I got etched on the, on the Chicago wall where I, I got the the, the the numbers to go find him. All right. He was your buddy from way back. We, we were we were we were to, we're together every day. Yeah, we you know we through grade school and I remember he came over to my house with with my friend Bob and he said we're gonna go and we're gonna go and list in the Marine Corps. I said I'm in college. I'm in my second year, so I went with them. I'm the first one to sign up, and we went. The three of us went right into staging and right to Vietnam, 60, 68. What was your reason in going in enlisting? Why did you want to enlist? Well, first of all, I, I feel that the Marine Corps is the, the number one fighting group in the world. And secondly, we were real patriotic young men, and we thought at that time what we were hearing was it was stopping communism, and we wanted to see for ourselves what was happening. We did not know the politics of what was going on in, in, in the United States. And we did what we thought was our our duty, and that was it. Now, with the benefit of time having passed, do you look at it differently, or do you look at it the same? I look at it from the standpoint that war is no good. But if you're doing it for the right reasons, and I think feel that we all went in with the proper mentality, it, so did you know, Afghanistan and, and all the great guys in World War II and Korea, yeah, but in retrospect, yeah, I, I would have done it again, it's just that you wish you don't have to go to any type of war, and then what sort of sort of hurts is that almost anybody, everybody coming back all got accolades and pay, parades and everything, when Vietnam veterans came back, they got nothing. And we did the same thing that everybody else did over there. We fought the same type of war. So this is so great here that they're do what they're doing for us and appreciating the fact that we went there and we, we served. Well, at the end of this day, I hope you feel that there has been an appropriate thank you and honor given to you. More than I think I deserve, <laughs> believe me. This is this is overwhelming for me. Well, the overwhelming moment, I think, is when you go to the wall. I oh, think that's going to be... I'm going to lose it. We will visit again with Joe shortly. But for the moment, we may wish to dress warmly for Airman Jesse Kemp who has some frigid memories from military life a couple hundred miles south of the Arctic Circle. This is Jesse Kemp. You were Air Force, right? Yes, sir. I was signed in 52, December 52, but I didn't get there until January 53. January in Alaska. I imagine that's pretty cold. Yes, sir. What was your mission there? 
Uh, I was a policeman. So you guarded an air base. What was the air base? Allison Air Force Base. And that's um, right outside Fairbanks? 26 miles from Fairbanks. How'd you stay warm all that time? <laughs> well, we had out of gear. And you had, you, so you were outside most of the time, right? All the time, obviously. What was a typical day there for you? Oh, in the summertime, it was all right. Didn't like no more than my stuff. How cold did it get, as they always ask? I think, I'm, I'm not going to quote on this now, but uh, I think I've seen it about uh, 51 or 57 below, I believe it was. How does a human being handle that? <laughs> did you have to handle it? Did you have any incidents over time, or was it pretty much normal? That, by the way, Alaska was not yet a state when you were there. No, it was called the territory. Yes, sir. Okay, when you're when you're outside at the base, do you have any protection from the elements at all, or you're you're just gear? Are you walking a certain area that you're patrolling? What do you do? Yes, we we we, we patrol the uh, flight line, water purification building. You're not in a booth or anything. You are out walking in the cold. Yes, of course. <laughs> you should win an award for that. <laughs> yep. Sadly, no awards for weathering the cold. It's part of the job description. We fast forward now to April 29th and 30th, 1975. Most American troops, at this point, are out of Vietnam. North Vietnamese forces have surrounded Saigon. It's just a matter of time before they take the capital. The remaining Americans move quickly to depart when the call for evacuation is read over Armed Forces Radio. The code is this line. The temperature in Saigon is 105 degrees and rising. That was immediately followed by the playing of White Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the The scene was beyond chaotic. Thousands of Vietnamese who'd assisted American efforts wanted out. They surrounded the U.S. Embassy pleading for a way to get out. The iconic photo of a line of people climbing steps to board a helicopter speaks volumes about the end of American involvement in Vietnam. Ed Bradley, the late CBS News correspondent, described the frantic efforts. We had to push and shove our way through a crowd of several hundred Vietnamese trying to scale the walls, only to be knocked back by U.S. Marines. Once inside the compound, for the Americans and those Vietnamese who managed to get in with legal documents, and the many who managed entrance without, the rest was easy. It was just a matter of waiting your turn for a helicopter to take you to one of the ships on station off the Vietnamese coast. On one of those ships offshore was a young Marine named Ray Jibera. He and his fellow Marines were responsible for bringing some measure of order to the chaotic boat and helicopter arrivals of Vietnamese refugees. Basically, Saigon was being overrun, and uh, so I guess the mission was to get as many refugees off of, uh, uh, out away from uh, Saigon, away from South Vietnam, and taken to other countries, which is what the, our responsibility now as Marines were 
to make sure, secure them as, secure the ship, secure anyone, any refugee who came on board, and then, um, and then we sort of um, watched them and, and secured them and, until they were aboard and then um, off to another, um, another country like Guam. We went back and got, uh, went back and get as many as we could. It was about over 35,000 refugees that we... That's a lot, and that's yeah. a ticklish situation because you have to maintain security on the ship. You don't know who these people are. Was there a screening process that got them to you? There was. Uh, they would come out, they would come toward the ship in little sand pans, I believe they call them, their little ships, their little boats. And then uh, at that time is when um, Marines were search them. And we would search every individual as they came aboard. And then um, again, we put them in uh, a designated area, which was guarded by Marines, all to the time that uh, we were able to get them to another country. What are you thinking about then as you're seeing all these people fleeing their homeland, going to presumably safe asylum somewhere? You don't know who they are. You, you know they're in distress in some form. It was, uh, you know, as a young Marine, a young 18-year-old Marine, it was uh, just the, the sight of um, their country getting... Uh, I would, we would just from the ship 20 miles off the coast, or you could see the country getting bombed, bombed with uh, motor rounds. And uh, so the emotions and the feelings were give them the, the children and women, you know, and, uh, and uh, the innocent ones to safety. And uh, I imagine there was a heap of emotion among the refugees, right? I mean, they're finally sensing they're getting out of danger, you know, out of harm's way. Oh, absolutely. A lot of tears. Absolutely, yeah, and very thankful that. That we were out there to, to uh, you know, help them uh, get away from being overrun, no question. That's got to form a lasting memory for you, doesn't it? It it it, it does, and it has, and uh, but um, it was, and it's been a, it's been over 40 years, and uh, I can remember it almost like it was just. What does this day mean for you, Ray? I'm so honored. I'm so happy that uh, I'm here today. Um, I had an uncle who. Um, and Godfather, who was in World War II. I was there for his return when he had the honor fight. He was a World War II vet. And then uh, all I can think of is someday, uh, my father was in the Korean War and he, he passed and he wasn't able to do this uh, memorial but uh, and this honor, but- uh, You're here for him. I'm here for him also, absolutely. Thanks, Ray. You're welcome. We move now to the Vietnam Memorial Wall, where Purple Heart veteran Charles Pryor stands in his dress uniform. I want to start off by thanking the Honor Flight Chicago for allowing me this day of honor that is truly a part of my healing process. And if I could make the one statement that summarizes this day for me, it's right here. My mantra, my mental mindset is to thank God. I'm so grateful that my name, Charles Pryor, is not on this wall. have not been here before or you have been here before? I was here when they dedicated it. That's right. I've been here many times. Okay. I was just here in January. But this is the first trip in my dress blues. Ah, 
And this is the first time that I'm associating my healing process. And that, that's where I'm, I'm headed, Paul. Every, they were affected. I, 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 there's no way they could not be affected. And, and part of what they need to do is a healing process. And part of that is coming here, coming if they here, can. Coming here, surrendering to the results, the ramifications of what happened there. And then for me, I want to go back to where it all happened. Next year? Next year. It'll be next year. You're yeah. going to go to? I'm going back to Vietnam. Long Bend, Tainan, Phuc Vinh, Benoit. I got to go back. Why do you have to go back? Because it's a mental vision board process for me. Does that put to rest the demons that you may be in? Amen. Amen. Big time. I've had many counselors, training, psychiatrists, therapists, and the one thing I've gotten from all of them is the way for my, the, the, the results for my healing is to tell my story. How long were you, you there? Can't, you can't see it in my eyes, but I was a kid. I, was, I wasn't even old enough to be there. And the suffering that I went through, it's still impacting me today. And that's why you're going through all of these motions to process. remove. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir, Paul. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was there in 1969, February through November in Vietnam. I earned my full honors, and that's, what I'm, that's why I'm here today. This is part of me getting my honor for the service that I rendered to this country. And I'm so thankful I didn't have to pay with my life. We reconnect with Joe Lombardi, who was at the wall near the name of his lost friend, Dan. I would get letters with my mother's handwriting. And finally, in September, I got one with my dad, and I go, oh my gosh, what happened? And he said Danny got shot by a sniper September 19th. And that's what hurts because you'll never see another year. And we, we probably would have been, well, like everybody that was in my group through high school, we're all still best friends. We still see each other all the time. So it just hurts. But you see his name on the wall and doing an etching or touching it can bring back fond memories too, can it not? I remember the good times, of course, but it just seemed like such, not just Dan, but you know, all of the guys that, that lost their, their youth and childhood and never see the, the joy of having children or marriage or whatever else is gonna happen. And you feel so bad about that. When you go back and get together with your old buds, those who knew Dan, are you going to tell them about your moment here at the wall? They, yeah, they all want them interfering. They're, they're texting me and asking already. Okay. Yeah, well, well, I'll tell them. I'll show them the etching and I'll tell them. But when you were standing there, did you have a message for Dan? Did you say I anything to, to him? him? Did you? Yeah. May I ask what you said to him? <laughs> miss you, Dan. I miss you. The last of our eight is Glenn Sanders, another combat vet in Vietnam, a Marine who had a very rocky road when he came home, 
but has managed over the years, with the help of family and friends, to right the ship. You're a newbie when you get there. You're trained on how to kill. Yes, and you're eager. And you're eager to do that. Yes, but when you get out there and see it, it kind of changes. And then you go through another stage where you're gungy, where you really become effective because once you're there for a period of time, then you learn to trade and you... In other words, you get good at killing. Oh, yeah, you do. And you uh, and you see other people getting killed or hurt, and now you got that desire. You know what I mean? That murder desire. You want to kill somebody too. You know what I mean? You want to, you want to create war. Did you understand what was going on in your head when that was 18 happening? 18 years old. You know, I didn't know shit, you know, and when, <laughs> sorry about the shit part, but uh, no, you don't know nothing. But you're trained and you're eager to get out there and you do what you got to do, you know what I mean? And once you see somebody that you know get hurt, then you become angry and then you become vicious, you know what I mean? And then the last start, the last stage that you go through is the short timers where you have the fear that you're not going to make it, you know what I mean? Then you feel sorry for the guys that's got to stay there when you leave, you know what I mean? And when you left, I think you said to me you started crying. Oh, yeah. I got on a helicopter and tears rolled right out of your eyes because you felt those are your buddies there, and there's there's rookies down there, and, you know, you hate to leave them. You, know? you weren't crying because I'm finally going home. You oh, were no. crying because you were leaving guys behind. Yeah, yeah. That's tough to take, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it was. And they, and I can still feel that, even right now. Even you know? today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I got to meet these guys when I got back. Some of them got wounded. Some of them didn't make it back. That would be left behind, you know what I mean? And uh, you think about that. And one guy that I met, his name was Greg Pyle. We called him Gomer because he was in the Marine Corps. And he was a little heavier than I did. He was one of the guys that we had to leave behind. And he took over my position and got wounded that night. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's true stories, and that's what, you know, when you see that, feel it, you do. You feel sorry for those guys. You hate to leave them. It's like it, your job wasn't done. Yeah. But you really want to get the hell out of there, trust me. Well, you did, and you came home on a ship, right? Yeah. So you, you had a long trip home, 17 days? Yeah, 17 days. days. And that way you had time to unwind, you know what I mean? A lot of guys that flew right home... You got a you got a boot or leave right when you got back to the base. You didn't get discharged that day, but they let you go out and they give you some money. And here you are, loose in California, and you're just like, man, it was like that. That would have been a total shock for me. So that's 17 days at that on that ship, and uh, the lifer is always screwing. What you know what I mean? Inspections, do this, do that, and uh, you could hide on that ship and get away with you know. But I I don't know that 17 days still. Get oh, you no, reacclimated, no, right? It still ain't gone. That 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 feeling that will never leave you. And then you have your guilt complexes for what you did do, how it felt. Is it right in the eyes of God, or you know? And of course, you were trained to do that. You're a warrior, and uh, go America, you know, yeah. and kill the Russians. That's what it, it was all Russian back. That's the way we felt. You know what I mean? And uh, stop communism. Some people who came back didn't have the luxury, if you can call it that, of a 17-day yeah. trip by sea. No. Some guys came back, like, within 72 hours. They yeah. leave the battlefront, and then they're home in a world that doesn't understand them, and they don't oh, no. understand yeah. it. It's total shock. 
and you know you don't understand what PTSD is you never even heard it we never heard of it that you know you just don't know what that is and you have it you know what I mean on just 4th of July you hit the deck if you're out in a baseball field and playing and now somebody throws a firecracker you're on the ground you know what I mean and everybody else laughs about it but you're serious. Not funny to no, you. No, no, not when it happens to you. You know what I mean. But uh, you still have that? Not anymore. I under, now that I understand what PTSD is and post-traumatic stress disorder, and working with other people that have had it and watching, because it could have destroyed my life. You know, I went through three marriages before I understood what it was, and went, you know, I I, I quit them pretty much you know what I mean I've been do you think that was due in part to your experience in Vietnam she didn't they didn't understand me and I certainly didn't understand what I had so that's what I kind of put the edge on it you know part of it was me and then you know self-medication you know alcohol drugs whatever you chose chose to do may I ask did you do that oh yes yeah to the max I have got eight I've had eight DUIs but I didn't figure that was bad because I was 72 years old. So if I only had eight and 72, only four stuck. So, you know what I mean? But it does screw your life up, you know? And then once you start, you know, if you have a good person, like a good woman, and you got children, and uh, you got a good job, like I always had a good job, good paying job. That's why I never went for benefits or none of this post-traumatic stress or, or PTSD, anything. You so know you're not I mean? getting any disability for that now? Oh, yeah, I am. I'm 100% disabled, 100%. but I've had four cancers already due to Agent Orange. Prostate, bladder, kidney, and skin. And so far, I've beat them all. I just had my kidney out about three months ago. And uh, what, what price did we pay? What price did price, you pay? It's, it's not even a price. It's because uh, what you do for your country, there is no money that's just if you do it i didn't have to go i enlisted and uh i was really proud to serve my country you know what i mean and when you come back and nobody's like hey they didn't care you know what i mean so and they're not even getting recognized for it but you still have that self-pride and guys that you served with you stay in touch with them and that's the only people that you can communicate with they understand you they yes that understand you you can talk to somebody about war or whatever and you just give them the words but when you're talking to your friends that was there with you or something like that it's a whole different whole different ball game did you hit a point in your life maybe relatively recently where you you kind of understood where your head was at you turned things around yes in the last probably 15 years uh, my whole life has turned around and how did that happen good friends and you know being understanding where your head is you know what I mean and not uh, altering your state of mind anymore I wasn't drinking wasn't partying you know what I mean and a good woman always helps stat or your children and once you got children then you got responsibility you know you have kids oh yeah I got three I got two two boys one that I adopted but he's no less than my son and then I have a, a daughter and a 30 a 29 year old they've helped you understand yourself yeah. and so your relationships well they may have been yeah. rocky well, you you're okay start, now when you start raising kids and start doing something for somebody else you forget about your problems other people that have died of cancer or something like that I do benefits for people that have cancer that occupies your time just helping people and yeah the whole notion of giving back and paying it forward that yeah, sort of thing that fair. helps that helps yeah. out doesn't it and you know what it's, you get that personal reward inside 
and I think that's what helped straighten me out. It gave me something to do, too, that, that I could excel in, something to, that you care about. Cancer is terrible, so I, I just enjoy helping people out, still do. This day sort of underscores the whole notion that there is a high measure of honor that's oh, due yeah. to all yeah. you folks. Yeah, there's personal self-satisfaction in what you do when you're, when you're a good boy. You know, when you're a bad boy, there's uh, consequences. When you're doing this, you get personal satisfaction. And it's not to brag about it. It's just that it comes to that feeling. It's a feeling. And it's uh, very rewarding. I'm glad you're a good boy, Glenn. Well, I am now. The exclamation point on Mission 111 comes at day's end when the vets enjoy a high-decibel homecoming. This is quite meaningful for Glenn Sanders, whose family is there to meet him. All right, now I'm going to ask you. Oh, yeah. This doesn't cure all ills, but it sure helps, doesn't yes. it? Oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. We're so proud of my dad. Tell me about him. He's the most generous guy I've ever met in my life. And I love him, and we're so proud of him. That's nice to hear it. Yeah, all right. good kids, too. Charles Pryor, in his full-dress military bearing, walks proudly and makes no effort to hide his smile. Does this help? So much. So much. How so? The gratefulness of being alive. I missed this when I came home. I didn't get it. I got it now. I got it now, man. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. I got it. This is great. Come back next month. Yeah. <laughs> Those are our eight stories. We are forever mindful that everyone has one. Thanks for listening to the voices of Honor Flight Chicago Mission 111. Please consider sharing this podcast. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.